The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Can you all hear me? Yes? Okay. Great. Okay, so there was a question on the floor that we were going to continue with. I was wondering um, how it changed your personal life to become uh, ordained. I mean, obviously, you still had to do all the work you had to do, but, you know, what was the impact of that ordination? Yes, thank you. So I think I need to start further back um, and say that, um, you know, also when one takes the first um, level of going forth, whatever that may be in one's own tradition, uh, there's... um, so there's the, the ceremony and the shaving of the head and the wearing the robes. There's that part, which so you look different. But there's also what it does to you inside. It, 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 it activates something. So uh, for those who go from uh, lay, lay practitioners, even if they're living on eight precepts, to eight precepts in not, uh, anagaricas, so like where you, where you wear the white robe and you shave your head, even, and they li- people are living in the monastery on eight precepts, and then they're going to continue living in the monastery on eight precepts, but as an anagarica. And you think, well, so that, that'll be just kind of the same, you know, more or less. But actually what happens when you make that public declaration to the universe of, you know, I'm, I'm dedicating my life to... I'm, I'm renouncing the ways of the world and I'm, as much as possible and, and dedicating my life to awakening, it, it activates... It, it, Karma ripens, let me put it that way. And so, um, so for myself, when I took the white robes, I felt, um, even though I'd lived in the monastery on eight precepts, I felt, first, one thing was that at all, at all my strongest kilesas came up very, very strong. Mind was full of kilesas, and it was like, whoa, look at that. And, uh, and also, there was uh, a very strong sense of receiving blessings, Receiving blessings from the lineage of from the Buddha, uh, so they were both of those things. All the work I needed to do and the support to do the work, they both they both sort of spontaneously arise, arose um, once I took the white robes and shaved my head. And and while I was in Anagarika, that sense of being in a stream of blessings remained, regardless of what I had to work with inside. There was that sense of being supported and and um, in a stream in some way and and then when I took the Siladara ordination um, to my surprise it was as though that all just got knocked aside it was like the, the, the rug was pulled out from under me I didn't know which way was up and it was very confusing and uh, I got used to living in you know in, with this different situation but um, I had I'm, I'm speaking very personally now I had um, ongoing this sense of um, there's nobody at my back when I look behind me, there's, there's no lineage, there's nothing there. I had my senior nuns who were themselves, they were, they were a bit like you know, older sisters kind of thing, they were a bit like young mothers or something, where they were themselves still learning. And, and they was like, well, there's nobody at my back, there's nothing there. I've got to hold myself up. 
So I always had that experience as a suitor, even to the point of my back hurting, you know, it was, became physical. And then when I took the bikuni ordination, to my surprise, it, I wasn't keen on taking the bikuni ordination. I wasn't, a, I wasn't one of the, the first pioneers or anything like this. It was just clear it had to happen. And so I took that ordination and pretty immediately, not in the ordination ceremony itself, but pretty immediately afterwards, I felt, ah, oh, I'm back in that stream of blessings. I can, my back can relax. There's, there's a whole lineage of, of bhikkhunis behind me. Taiwanese, Chinese, Sri Lankan, Indian, going all the way back to Mahapajapati. And it's like, and it was literally just like going from feeling, I've got to hold myself up for, you know, something like, what was it, 14 years or something, to, ah, oh, okay, I'm belonging to a lineage again. So it was, it's on a visceral level. And it's not very rational, you know, rationally, it's just like, so what? You know, you look the same, you keep more rules. I was a little uh, hesitant to, to take bhikkhuni ordination because I, in, as a Siddhartha for some years, I had really good support for practice. I, and I could be anonymous, which I really liked, <laughs> and to just get on with my practice and go away in the forest and meditate and you know, have my jobs that I did and my responsibilities. And it was great in, in many ways. And then as a bhikkhuni... You know, you're kind of thrown out there into the limelight and it's, it's, a, it's a movement. It's a movement. And once you step into it, you, you've got to just be part of it. And now I, I'm really actually quite grateful for that. And I think uh, my view before was, was in, to some degree a privileged position because I had a lot of support at a, at a high price, but I had a lot of support to, to practice. And now I'm much more busy I'm more involved in politics, not not um, you know, not of the United States of America, but of you know, Bikuni Sangha and Bikuni Sangha and so on, than I was before, and I have to study more than I did before. So I actually have less time for meditation practice in some ways than I had before. But it's but I also feel like I'm really happy to be doing this because it's right, because it needs to happen, and I think of it on a long-term view of like. I'm doing this now so that people in the future can come into something. They don't have to build the boat. They can, they can be a boat that they come into. And that gives me a certain joy that that's, uh, that can be passed on to others. Yeah. Another question? Do you want to take the microphone? What about with, what, what about with your like, blood family? My blood family? What do you, what's the yeah, question? How does, it, how does it affect... My my blood family don't really get it because uh, my my mother was the only one who came to any of my ordinations, so they, nobody else came to anything because um, I couldn't relate to it. And um, my mother came to my not my Anagarika eight precept ordination, and she also came to my Siddhartha ordination, which were both in England. And then when I had my Bikuni ordination in America, she's already quite old by then. She was like, "Well, you ordained already. Like, what's what's going on?" <laughs> And, uh, and my mother is much more uh, heartfelt. She does, she's not a particularly intellectual, rash, you know, she's much more like faith and heartfelt. So, and she understands that that was my going forth. That's where I really went forth. But, and then this is like, it's kind of different. It's a different, you know, ideally that, that first going forth would have been bikuni ordination if, if in an ideal world, but because it wasn't available, it was this other ordination. And then, so inside, in the heart, there's a, there's a going forth, a giving of oneself. So that happened for me earlier on. And then the full ordination was more like, as was said in the video, it's like aligning with the Buddha's intention. So the inner intention then aligns with the outer manifestation. But uh, she doesn't particularly understand that or 
care about it that much. And uh, the rest of my family, my oldest sister actually was a nun herself for 29 years in a Hindu tradition. So she kind of understands it better. And then my other sister doesn't really get it and my brother isn't that interested. And They know me as me, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Did you have a question, Kim? I do. Um, I'm, I'm actually just looking for some information to put pieces in together in my head. Um, I remember learning through a course that Bhikkhu Inalio taught that there are three vinyas in existence, the Pali one and the Dharma Guptaka one that we've heard about, and then there's also this Mula Sarvastivada mm-hmm. vinya right. that is, I think, more associated mm-hmm. with the Tibetan, mm-hmm. which we That's talked true. about a little bit. So is it mm-hmm. is it correct that there are no there are no bhikkhunis ordained in that with that vinya right now? So, yes, as far as, I, as far as I know, I can't okay. give an absolute certain, but as far as I know, the, the bhikkhunis have ordained in the Dharma Guptaka, the, okay. the ty- Tibetan bhikkhunis who are presently bhikkhunis ordained in the Dharma Guptaka. Yeah. Oh, I see. So there it, are actually this six. transfer over is also possible there. Well, if it's accepted. So what, what's happening is, you know, that there are women who have been bhikkhunis for decades in the Tibetan tradition, but they're considered, oh yes, you're a bhikkhuni, but then you're not Mulasvastavada. Like Tenzin Palmo. Tenzin Palmo. She looks like a full bhikkhuni to me. She totally is. Tenzin Palmo. Prema Chodron. Who's in the Spokane? Tupton Chodron. Uh, Kamalekshe Somo, they're all in, in the US. They're all bhikkhunis, but they're not considered part of a lineage. Okay. And Venerable uh, Tenzin Palmo is, is probably the most fortunate in that her root guru, her teacher, uh, really supports her ordination and has acknowledged her practice and her, <coughs> her skill and her ordination. But it, it's within the kind of bigger community, it's still not, not accepted. And I think that's... It's common everywhere. It's like in the Sri Lankan tradition, there are, there, there are all these bhikkhunis and there have been bhikkhuni ordinations happening for, they were happening for years before the conversation happened. Uh, you know, is this going to be accepted on a government level or not? And it was decided not. They're still there, you know. People are still ordaining there. And so it's like... But they're allowed to be ordained. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's very much not black and white, you know. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? We'll continue with the... This new PowerPoint that's being debuted today. <laughs> so having this extra time um, was really a treat to be able to share with you a lot of the backstories of some of the women who have been um, influential in um, the training and organization of the Bikuni Sangha starting in 1988. Um, when I first did the, when I first put the first PowerPoint together, there were all of a lot of these stories were in there, and as I was given just an hour usually <clears throat> to give it, I had to like edit, 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 and all of these stories. And when I looked at everything that I edited, I, I saw, oh wow, there's a whole another PowerPoint presentation. So um, we asked Laurie if we could extend it another hour so that we could um, share some of these stories with you. I'm going to hold off on doing this to mm-hmm. yes. so um, Mindy asked me when she, was, when she put this PowerPoint together we looked at it together and we worked on it a little bit together and she said what should we call it and I said going on into the struggle and, and she, so she said well where does that come from and it's, uh, it's actually from the Papaja Sutta Papaja means going forth 
in the Sutta Nipato, which is a, one of the older um, uh, teachings of the Buddha, one of the earlier teachings of the Buddha, and it's where um, he he just he speaks about his his uh, renouncing his life before and taking the renunciant life, and he that it's like the the last little gata of that of that uh, scripture says. And now I will go on. I will go on into the struggle. This is where my heart delights. This is where my heart finds bliss. So I've always loved this uh, this little teaching because it's it's not the way of the world, but it's the way of freedom. So, and uh, going on to, into the struggle, it, it it points to the inner struggle of, of awakening, which we can all experience, and it also points to the struggle of the bhikkhuni sangha in in re-establishing in the world. So going on into the struggle became kind of a theme that we looked at um, in, uh, in looking at all these stories of, of the various women. So for the first, so we know now um, that the bhikkhunis appeared and disappeared and now have come back into existence in 1988. Um, there's too many stories to mention all of them and um, we're already a little bit behind time so we're probably going to have to cut some more of them but we're going to give you the highlights of them. The term Mahateri means great elder and it's conferred after 20 vasas. Um, or range retreats or years as a bhikkhuni. Um, and in 2008, the bhikkhunis that were ordained in um, 1988 became the first Theravada Mahateri bhikkhunis um, since the gap of the thousand years. Um, as if you remember that picture of the two lines of the bhikkhus and the bhikkhunis and, and Ayananda Bodhi pointed out, oh, well, that bhikkhu has 50 years and that bhikkhu has 40 years and that, well, there aren't bhikkhunis like that in this lineage right now because it just started 30 years ago. And many of the women who were ordained 30 years ago were older women who were and are dead already. Um, so there's very few who are still alive who were ordained in 1988, but we want to tell you about a few of them. Um, but first, we want to tell you about Bikuni Tao Fatsu, who was the first Thai woman to become a Bikuni. She, um, her original Thai name was this name, which I'm not even going to attempt to say. Um, and she was ordained as a seminary. Um, ten Precept um, in 1955 and at that point it was illegal in Thailand to be ordained so we don't quite as a novice and we don't quite know how she managed to do that but she did uh, in 1971 she went to Taiwan for bhikkhuni ordination and then she returned to Thailand and she established the Song Dhamma Kalyani temple outside of Bangkok she had a 10-year-old daughter at the time that she took her ordination who later became, in 2003, Venerable Damananda, um, the first Thai bhikkhuni who was ordained in Sri Lanka. So Damananda, Venerable Damananda, was 10 years old when her mother ordained. And um, Vener- uh, bhikkhuni Tao Fatsu passed away at the age of 95 um, in 2003, one year after she witnessed her daughter become a bhikkhuni herself. 
1988, if you remember, at the, at the Shilai Monastery, there was uh, the first ordination. And um, uh, there were 20 women who were ordained during this, um, including um, Ayakema. And Ayakema was so influential in the reestablishment of the Bikuni lineage that we want to honor and give a bit of her story. She was really the inspiration for the Alliance for Bikunis. Um, she um, was born to Jewish parents in Germany and was sent to Scotland as a teenager during World War II and joined her parents in Shanghai later where she was interned in a Japanese prison and war camp. So that was her youth. Um, she later emigrated to the United States, married and had two children, and she traveled to Asia with her second husband and learned about meditation and later began to teach meditation in the United States and Europe. In 1979, whoops, sorry, I forgot that one. In 1979, she was the first Western woman to ordain as a Theravada seminary in Sri Lanka. Now, who she found to do that, we're not quite sure, but she did. Um, along with Bhikshuni Lekso Tsomo, she co-founded Sakyadita in 1987, uh, which is the, uh, a group of Buddhist women, Buddhist nuns in Asia. And um, she was also oh, the... Sakyadita is actually women, Buddhist women, lay and ordained all lineages. Yeah. Okay. Um, and she was the first Buddhist nun to address the United Nations in that same year. Um, as it was not possible to organize an ordination for bhikkhunis in the Theravada tradition in Sri Lanka, she traveled, she traveled to um, the Shilai Temple uh, in the Fo Guan Shan Buddhist order in 1988 and was ordained there. Um, she left behind many precious teachings of books and recorded talks. Another woman who was ordained in 1988 was Damawati Guru Ma, who we talked, talked about a little bit um, earlier. She was um, one of the Sakyan clan, interestingly enough. She was in the same clan as the Buddha. And um, she was born in 1934 during a time, during the, a time when... Um, the educational system was not well developed in Nepal and women were not allowed to go to school at all. So her young monastic life is amazing and awe-inspiring story, including walking on foot from Nepal to Burma, where she attained a very high level of Buddhist studies. So she ran away from home in 1950. Um, she stayed in Burma for over 10 years and um, came back to establish, in 1965, to establish the Dharma Kirti Vihara, which was the first nunnery in, in um, Nepal. She really defied limitations imposed on women during that time, and a recent biography of hers called Beloved Daughter, the Story of Damawati Guruma, has just been published in English in 2016. Um, she won the hearts of many Hindu families in Nepal, which is basically a Hindu country, not a Buddhist country, um, and uh, she offered uh, classes in Abhidhamma and um, Satipatthana, and through her strong effort, um, created over 30 viharas and monasteries throughout the country. Um, in 
19, in the 1980s, she had an audience with the Dalai, Dalai Lama and asked, in his opinion, should women and men have equal spiritual potential, and if so, whether women can and should be ordained. So that question was asked of him way before 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, and he answered in the firm, affirmative and urged her to take ordination, though he couldn't give much support other than saying yes. A few months later, coincidentally, she was visited in Kathmandu by the Taiwanese um, women who were organizing the 1988 um, ordination in the Silai Monastery in Los Angeles, and she was invited, along with several other nuns from Nepal, to go to L.A. to be ordained in this first ordination. Um, and in uh, 1995, she received um, a very prestigious award from Myanmar for the knowledge of her Buddhist teachings. She's a really beloved teacher in, um, in, um, in Nepal, and she's getting older. Um, you know, she's in her 80s, almost 90 years old. Um, but she's uh, really beloved um, in the... In, in her home country and has done a lot of work in, um, for retreats and health clinics, a lot of social um, work in her country. Dhammawati Guruma. Venerable Dhamma Mahateri was um, the third, one of the third, the third woman that we know about who was ordained in 1988. She lives a really quiet life now, kind of as a hermit in Germany. She was um, born in Germany in 19... Uh, I don't know what year she was born, but she was um, ordained as a precept nun in 1984. And she ordained again in 1988. She returned to Asia for seven years... And then she returned to Germany. And um, the, the, the important piece of the story from, um, uh, Dhamma, from Venerable Dhamma was this personal communication that we got from her through Ayatataloka, where she recollects that their training was a month long and of really high discipline for the 1988 um, uh, ordination. And she remembers... Dr. Ratanasara, who was the, so influential in getting the ordination done. And she writes about how there was a lot of uncertainty about how to live the bhikkhuni life among women brought together for the ordination. Most of them had different backgrounds of training and culture. They came from all different countries. And so, quote, to keep the confidence that the right approach would be found by each of us and that we'd, we would be able to start, we would be able to start with the bikuni life was more valuable than can be said in words. And that was kind of the transmission that she kept got, getting from Dhamma, Dhamma um, from Venerable Ratanasara. Um, so again, she lives uh, quiet. She's written two books on Buddhist um, topics, and she lives a very quiet life where she sometimes accepts. Um, uh, guests and visitors. We have, um, she leads a quiet hermit life. <laughs> so we also have these really great pictures that um, Ayatatoloka shared with us. Um, here are two more women who ordained uh, during that time. I don't think this is from the ordination. I think this is another picture of them. This is Bikuni Visaka uh, Damasila and Damadarsika. 
And this is a picture from this winter where Ayatatoloko was visiting with these two women, the same as these two women 30 years later. Um, they also lead a very quiet life in Sri Lanka. They're still alive. And they gave permission for their pictures to be shared, but they asked that their contact information not be made public. So they really want to maintain their privacy. Um, I'm kind of out of order. So so that was from 1988. And then the next one we talked about was 1996. There was that jump of um, a few years. And in 1996, there were 10 Dasa Silmata, Sri Lankan um, women who were ordained. And we're going to talk about um, Venerable uh, Kusama, who is very important in bringing this um, ordination to fruition, and also Sudarshana, Sudarshana. who will be um, at the ordination next Saturday. Next week, yes. So both of these, again, both of these women are Mahateris, more than 20 years in robes. And we have this very grainy but really historic picture of the 10 women who were ordained um, during the 1996 um, uh, ordination in Sarnath. So the first woman we wanted to tell you about was Aya Kusama. And we were just, we were just watching a new movie that's just come out about the... Um, whole process of the ordination in Sri Lanka. We just happened to find it. The Alliance for Bikuni sent um, a link to it and um, heard her story. And I really wanted to just cut out that interview and bring it today, but haven't done that yet, maybe in another incarnation of this presentation. But in it, she talks about how she really didn't intend to get, to get ordained. She was working and, and um, researching and trying to get these women ordained. And then the man who was um, the bhikkhu who was organizing it said, you have to ordain. You have to be the senior one. You have to do this for all of the bhikkhunis. And she was like, okay, I guess I have to do this. And so she did. And um, so she was really a pioneer in many, many levels. Originally, she studied molecular biology um, and pursued a master's degree, um, hoping to find an answer on what was the beginning of life. Um, When the answers didn't satisfy her, she turned to uh, Buddhism and did her master's degree in Buddhist philosophy and two doctorates in Buddhism. She also did a degree course in Pali, and she taught in the university for 20 years before she was ordained. And it was her influence as a professor of, of so many of the men, high-standing men in Sri Lanka, that was the main reason that she was asked to ordain, because people felt like if she ordains and goes back, she already has so much influence with so many people that it will be easier for the people of Sri Lanka to accept the bhikkhuni ordination. So she did research into the bhikkhuni vinaya, and she found that the... Um, and her dissertation became a handbook for Buddhist nuns in Sri Lanka. And she's now in her 80s. Um, she compared the Dharma Guptika Vinaya and the Pali Vinaya, found that there was no difference. Um, and she states, the facts are stubborn, but hi- and history cannot be altered. Um, 
She also said in the interview in this movie that we saw last night that they, in 1996, they needed, to, they felt that their lives were in danger to go back to Sri Lanka, and they needed to stay in India for two years, which I had never heard before. So that was an important piece of the of the picture that I hadn't. And I and what we were both thinking was mm-hmm. that. They stayed there, and then in 1998, it was easier and more accepted. They did some some work around people's acceptance of it because there they were in robes for two years already. So in 1998, um, it was easier for them to go back and and start ordaining women. Yeah, we, we we're not sure whether not it means sure, really like their lives were in danger or whether their lives as bikinis were in danger. That that it was difficult because for the for, in 1996 for those. Bikunis who went back to Sri Lanka, it was they had, they were not accepted. It was very difficult for them to survive as bikunis. And then, uh, two years later in India, there was an ordination which was more accepted. So, I'm not sure that it. We're was, not sure. It doesn't. It seems a little. It doesn't fit with any other story we've heard that that their actual lives were in danger. To to be a bikuni in in Sri Lanka, that seems a little uh, strong. So it is what she said, yeah, but, but it was just an interview. It may have so. been a little out of context. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, so the third woman that we wanted to tell you about was who was ordained in 1998. Nope, didn't cut this one out. Oh, oh. <laughs> Was um, Bikuni Dasha du Sudarshana Mahateri. Um, she really defied her country's tradition by taking full ordination, um, and she grew. She had grown up in a comfortable home with two sisters and a brother, and her parents owned a hotel and a grocery store. And her mother was really and 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 she really wanted to follow in the footsteps of her father's sister, who was already a Buddhist nun. But her mother insisted that she stay in school and study, so she finished high school. And a year later, she took her first vows. Um, and she cut her waist-length hair and shaved for the occasion, shaved her head for the occasion, and she gave her hair to her mom, who was too upset to attend the ceremony. So going back to that question about fa- blood family, family, birth families, you know, the, all different kinds of reactions and responses. She went on to earn a bachelor's degree and two master's degree, taught high school girls, um, for many years, and then in 1996, at the age of 33, she took full bikuni ordination. She arrived in, um, and I'm just going to click through these. Um, she helped organize bikuni ordinations in 2001, 2002, and 2003. And she, um, in 2003, she was the lucky recipient of a visa through the State Department's lottery program uh, seven years after she became a bikuni. And why did she want to come to America? I wanted, I've never been to a Western country, she said. I wanted to go and try. So she came and ended up in Florida. And arriving in America, she started out as a caregiver for an elderly woman. And I really wanted to include her story because she had to do things outside of the box in order to survive in the beginning. We're not quite sure whether she's continuing to do this, but she needed to work. She learned to drive a car. She had to become more familiar with American culture. She began taking English classes at a local college. Um, She had lots to learn, like, how do I cook? 
She says that um, she didn't even know how to cut an onion, and she often had to resort to long-distance tutoring from her mother. Um, and, and so she had to do things that usually bhikkhunis or even dasasilmata were not doing in, in Sri Lanka. Um, but she did, and, and she continued to develop a small and loyal following, um, mostly of Americans, in Florida, in her small town, in her small town, so her home is dedicated to is like a vihara or a monastery. People come once a week for chanting and meditation, and she says, "Now is she at peace with the life she chose so many years ago?" Um, she says, "I'm so happy, and now my mom is happy too," which I thought was nice. And she is currently the most senior Theravada bhikkhuni in the United States. And we're going to have the honor of having her here next week um, for the um, ordination. For the ordination, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, and in a recent email exchange, she told Ayananda Bodhi that she teaches meditation, and she's also a chaplain at a local college now. And that's what she's doing, also. Anything you want to add? Mm. And she's supported the ordination of bikinis also more recently. So she's she's helped people. Uh, bring in new preceptors and get more familiar with how to give ordination. So she's kind of passing that on, even when she's not doing it herself. She's yeah. kind of guiding others to do that. So that's her. And we, we just got a really beautiful picture of her, which we'll switch out for the next time we present it. But this is the only picture we had of her from the 2016 ordination that happened down in L.A. Um, 1997. Nineteen ninety-seven, uh, we see Ayatatiloka, and unfortunately, we don't know the names of any of the other women who ordained with Ayatatiloka in the nineteen ninety-seven. Um, uh, Ayatatiloka was ordained was born in nineteen sixty-eight in Washington D.C. Same year as Ayasudarshana. Right. It's a good year. Two different parts of the world. She was inspired at the age of nineteen by a sudden death of somebody close to her. Um, to join monastic life. And she left the university and made her way to Europe and India and entered monastic life as an Anagarika, ended up in South Korea, found a mentor there, and stayed for 10 years where she trained in South Korea. She returned to the United States in 1997 and, and continued to study, and she was ordained in 1997. Um, in um, and um, I think the thing that's most the the aspect of um, Ayatatuloka's influence on the Bikuni Sangha now is that she was the first Westerner to get to become a preceptor uh, because she was ordained so early in 1997. In 2009, she was the preceptor in Australia, which was the first time that women received ordination in their home country. And then she was the first uh, one to ordain Westerners here in the United States. Again, the first time that women received ordination on their home turf. She's a prolific writer and has written many, many articles um, about the history of bikunis throughout the world. And has most recently founded the Damadarini or moved Damadarini to Pengrove and established a new monastery there. So that's the Mahateris, the women that have 20 years plus. Um, 
And now we want to honor the Terrys, the women that have 10 years plus. So Terry means elder and is a title given after 10 years of being a bikuni. And as of the 2016-2017 anniversary year, there are now many bikunis who have this title. This is by no means a complete list. We've just picked out a few women to tell you about um, and who also have an an internet presence that we're able to connect with them. So the first one we want to tell you about was ordained in 1998, and this is Bikuni Raha Sada Sumana. Um, she uh, took ordination as a Dasa Sumata at the age of 15 and in her local Vihara. In those days, um, I'm just going to click all of these so you can see things. Um, in those days, Sri Lanka didn't have very many nuns. Um, she was born in 1941. They didn't have very many older, uh, any young nuns, and the older ones were really kind to her and taught her the Dhamma. Um, she is one of, one of the bhikkhunis who says that she never cooked. She always received her meals, and she um, thought, considers this a real fundamental part of monastic life. Um, after 10 years of living in her first Vihara, she took up a more nomadic life, um, and she went from place to place where people invited her to teach. And evidently, people liked her very much because she was young, intelligent, and beautiful. Um, And then in 1979, she settled in one place, and she started a monastery with four other nuns on a piece of land that was given to them by the Sri Lankan government. So at some level, there was some support from the government. Um, Then after 40 years of being a Dasa Silmata, she took seminary ordination with 26 other women in Dambula in 1997, and that was the first time that seminary ordination was given in Sri Lanka. Um, And then she took full ordination in 1998, she and she came back to Sri Lanka and had one month of study in Dambula. Ninety-eight was in India. She came back and had one month of study, then went back to her monastery where fifteen hundred people celebrated her bhikkhuni ordination oh. with her. So, again, 19, 1998 was the was the the ordination where Fo Guanshan sponsored it from China, and they all agreed that it would be okay for these women from 1998 to go back and to start ordaining. So she was one of the first women who began in ordaining as a preceptor and started to grow the Bikuni Sangha in, um, in, in um, Sri Lanka. She's traveled to various countries to act as a preceptor, and she's ordained close to 200 bhikkhunis in various countries. And um, looking at her temporary ordinations, it's probably somewhere in the thousands. Um, This year marks her 60th year in robes and her 19th year as a bhikkhuni. So for all intents and purposes, she is a Mahateri. (laughs) We're going to skip her... Oh, they didn't. They weren't hidden. Oh no, we weren't going to skip her. 
hidden ones are not hidden. Bikuni Suntinta Terry was born in Germany. Um, she was trained at the Bhavana Society um, with Bhante Gunaratana in West Virginia and then received high ordination in Bogaya in 1998 as well. Um, she also spent three years in Amravati Monastery, so she was there when I went to live there in 91. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 2015, she was the preceptor to Aya Dira in Germany. So that was the first time that she had been preceptor to the next generation of um, bhikkhunis. A whole other um, aspect of the, of, bhikkhun, of the bhikkhuni lineage that I really didn't um, look at at all in the original PowerPoint that I, that I did was the, um, uh, the whole lineage that came up in Indonesia. And um, we have information about two women from Indonesia, and one of them is Aya Satini. Um, at around the age of seven, she felt a call for her to to live as a seminar, samana, as a samana, and the determination grew stronger until she was ordained as a mechi in 1990, in the monastery in Bali, which is um, one of the only places, uh, only it's the only Buddhist monastery in Bali, um, in Indonesia. Um, and then on the, on the article that I read to her, it said, with the spirit that continues to burn, she went through many obstacles until she was ordained in 2000. So Fo Guanshan had three different ordinations that they sponsored, and the third one was in 2000 in Taiwan. And that's when um, Indonesian nuns and um, other women from Nepal all went to Taiwan, and they were ordained there. She's really well-known in um, Indonesia for her work with children and youth, and she has camps several times a year. Um, <clears throat> she also established uh, Wisma Kusalayani, where she's the abbess at this time. In 2015, um, Indonesia had the first uh, ordination in over a thousand years. And there were women, there were nine seminaries that underwent ordination. Two were from Indonesia, and the other seven were from Sri Lanka, Japan, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Australia. And the ordination ceremony was witnessed by 1,500 people. And um, after having put together the ordination at Spirit Rock for 300 people, I just can't imagine doing it for 1,500. <laughs> Um, but what's interesting in this, in this is that, um, again, how the, the politics of it and the support, where does the support come from? But the ordination was officially opened by the Director General of the Indonesian Ministry of Affairs, and it was followed by offerings by state officials and sponsors. So there's a lot of um, support in Indonesia for these, um, for these bikunis. And also just to add that uh, when Ayatataloka went to Australia from the U.S. in 2009 to ordain, there were no uh, nuns, bhikkhunis, senior enough to offer ordination at that time. Now Ayasantini is actually the, the main preceptor for nuns in Australia and, and uh, 
Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's been doing a lot of international. So, um, Aya Sudina was originally born in um, Sri Lanka and was ordained in 2002. Um, she has a master's degree in Buddhist philosophy and she taught and she was a teacher and lecturer in English at the Teachers College and the Ministry of Education before she left to come to America. She was trained as a seminary at the Bhavana Society um, with Bhante Gunaratana um, in West Virginia and was ordained in a bhikkhuni ordination in 2002. She's the author of three books, three children's books, and is now the resident bhikkhuni in the South Carolina Buddhist Vihara. And she's a very radiant being, a lot of joy, a lot of good energy. And then we come to the ordination of 2003, um, where Ayasudama, Venerable Damananda, and Ayagunasari were ordained. The first we want to tell you about is Venerable Damananda, and um, uh, she's, she's best to be heard. She's just a powerhouse, and she's a wonderful teacher. In the movie last night, we saw her in action teaching some of the new bhikkhunis who are coming, uh, many of them from Bangladesh, actually, um, preparing them for their ordination. It was really inspiring to see her in action. See, it's not doing it. We've had some technical problems with these. (laughs) So... um, Bhikkhuni Damananda, um, Venerable Damananda, was married. She worked as a professor in Buddhist studies, and she was a very popular TV personality for 25 years before she was ordained in 2003. So she was very well known in Thailand, in, in Thailand in Buddhist circles, as an expert in Buddhist history and, and, um, and the Buddhist teachings. Um, she is now abbess of the Songdama Kalyana Monastery, where her Bhikkhuni mother had originally built outside of um, Bangkok. She holds temporary seminary ordination twice annually and also conducts meditation retreats at the monastery. And she's also published numerous works in Thai and English and has translated over 30 Buddhist books um, in English and Thai um, from English to Thai. Um, She's also established a pan-Asian organization that supports bhikkhunis throughout Asia. And interestingly enough, in the fall of 2016, there was a group of 13 bhikkhus, two tilashin, one lay man, and three lay women from Burma who came to visit her in Thailand. And we were both amazed I mean, just like, it was just amazing that a group came to a bikun, a group from Burma, where there's so much pushback um, about having women um, ordained, came to visit um, Venerable Damananda. And they had a three-hour meeting with her. And in, during this meeting, she talked about the bikuni sangha in Thailand. She talked about the development of the network of Asian bikunis, which includes Thailand, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Malaysia, 
but not Burma. And um, she also explained to them the beginning of ordination, of how, how they're beginning to do ordinations of bhikkhunis in Thailand or bringing people to Sri Lanka, how they're managing to do that. And so she discussed some of the issues when finally one of the bhikkhus asked, why did Venerable Dhammananda insist on the revival of bhikkhunis that have been so long extinct? And Venerable Dhammananda gave him the opposite scenario. Suppose the bhikkhus were all gone and they were only bhikkhunis. If, if the bhikkhunis should have the same attitude and the bhikkhus are all gone, that is good and need to do nothing about it. What would be their comment? All the bhikkhus laughed, understanding the point that Venerable Dhammananda was trying to drive at. Yes, it is the Buddha's intention to have both bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, laymen and laywomen. If one of us is missing, it's our duty to try to revive the others so that we have a completion of the fourfold Buddhists which was established by the Buddha. This is how we pay respect to the Buddha. And another quote from Venerable Dhammananda, it's a movement now, it is our right, it is our heritage to lead a full monastic right life we are on the right side of history. So here she's seen with these visitors, and she is providing temporary ordinations, in case any of you are interested. She is providing um, monastic training every June, and then nine-day temporary ordination, if you'd just like to get your feet wet or toe wet, um, regularly in April and in December every year. I'd just like to add that uh, when Bhikkhuni Dhammananda first ordained, and she was very outspoken, as, as we mentioned, she was a TV personality, she's well known. She was very outspoken about the reestablishment of Bhikkhuni ordination, and she received a lot of pushback, a lot of criticism. Um, both for, well, uh, you know, it was seen as like if you're a monastic, you're supposed to be demure and quiet, and you just quietly practice, and, and then eventually, if you practice well enough, people will start to recognize you. So that's the kind of ethos, which, of course, if you're highly realized, that does happen. But for, for ordinary people, you know, if, if, you do, if you practice in that way, nothing really happens. So she was very outspoken, she, she, she rocked the boat a lot received a lot of pushback. And when I heard about this story with the Burmese bhikkhus coming to visit, I was so amazed because Burma is the most conservative of, of all of the Theravada countries. So it's, it's illegal in, in uh, Burma to ordain a, a woman. And uh, I know two Burmese bhikkhunis, um, and they said that if they were to go back to Burma at this time as Theravada bhikkhunis, they would be immediately thrown out of the country. So... If you're a Mahayana bhikkhuni, you can, it's easier. But it's, uh, it's very controversial in Burma. So the fact that those, those monks actually went to find out and to ask and, and laughed at that joke, I felt like, okay, there's hope. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. So one of the other women who... Uh, one of the other women <clears throat> who ordained in 2003 was Aya Sudama who also will be here coming to the ordination next week. Uh, she was born in 1963 in Charlottesville, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and graduated from the New York Law, from NYU Law School and practiced law in San Francisco. Uh, in um, 1999, she went to study with Bhante Gunaratana 
And in 2003, she traveled to Sri Lanka to be ordained in this first international ordination. Um, and then in 2000, and from 2000, uh, she's a resident teacher in Greenville, South Carolina, and then was invited to um, found the Charlotte uh, Buddhist Vihara. So she went home and became the abbess in Charlotte, North Carolina, where she currently resides. And the third woman who um, we want to share a st- her story is Ayagunasari, who will be the preceptor next Saturday. She will also be here. Um, she was born in 1932 in Burma and was a, a doctor and raised five children and came to the United States about 45 years ago. Um, she took seminary seminary ordination in 2002 in Los Angeles at the age of 70 and was fully ordained in 2003 and in 2007 founded Mahapajapati Monastery in Southern California where she's the abbess Um, she will she spends uh, long periods of time each year um, and is dedicated also to study in retreat and is dedicated to study she's known for her warm and welcoming character her scholarship and her deep commitment to the path of awakening she is she is one of our bikini grandmothers <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in 2000 and, in 2016 she ordained, uh, she was preceptor for the first time at the age of 85. So I, I attended this ordination and uh, it was very uh, inspiring to have the, the Sangha coming together and uh, we had uh, Bhikkhuni and Seminary and Anagarika ordinations all happening. And uh, amongst the Bhikkhuni candidates, one was Sri Lankan. She'd come from Sri Lanka to ordain in California and then go back to Sri Lanka, take that back to Sri Lanka. And, and Bhante Piyananda, who's the abbot of this monastery, who's been um, one of the most proactive bhikkhus f- to, for the um, revival of the bhikkhuni order, he commented, you know, now California is so so kind of ripe for ordination that we even have bhikkhunis, women coming from Sri Lanka, from Buddhist countries, to ordain in California <laughs> and then take it back to their own country. So... It certainly is in the Western world. California is one of the most fertile grounds for the, to, for the um, resurgence of the Bikuni order. And who was asking? You were asking me about Bhante Piananda, right? Yeah. Yeah, Bhante Piananda. Bhante Piananda has been involved from 1996, from right back from that time. He's been actively advocating for ordination for women, and, and he supports ordinations in his monastery in, in L.A., yeah. And the reason that uh, the Sri Lankan bhikkhus are so supportive is because they really understand that if, if the fourfold sangha isn't established, the dharma won't continue. People will lose faith. They'll say, well, what is this Buddhism? It's, it's sexist, it's uh, whatever. So they have that broad view. It's, it's interesting to me that it's the Sri Lankan because they really get it. And it's motivated by a love of the dharma. And somehow the Western figures haven't quite got that yet. Not everyone, but there's a few who have, but generally they haven't quite got that yet. It's got to keep working on that one. (laughs) So now we're going to switch to another country that just began to have um, ordained bhikkhunis, and that's Vietnam. Um, And this is another Ayadamananda. And... uh, 
She has the same name, but she was ordained in 2004. She was in a Mahayana monastery for many years, um, and in her mind, she was inclined to, a, to the Theravada practice, but in her heart, she was in a Mahayana school and for many years stayed there because of various commitments and reasons. But eventually, teachers really guided her and pushed her to Burma to study with um, many very well-known teachers, Payak Sayadaw, Sayadaw Janaka, Sayadaw Pandita, Payana, uh, Sayadaw Utejaniya, Shwa Min Sayadaw, like a whole variety of teachers. Great difference between Utejaniya and Upandita. And um, she received a BA in Buddhadhamma in 2002, and then she met Bikuni Kusama, and Bikuni Kusama told her about the situation of Bikunis in, in Sri Lanka, and it was of interest to her. And so she came to Sri Lanka and began to study, got another BA and PhD in Colombo. And then in 2004, she was ordained with seven other women, five Sri Lankans, another Vietnamese woman, and another woman from the Czech Republic. And she ended up staying in Sri Lanka for six years with her mentor, Aya Kusama. And then in 2010, put this up, and then in 2010, a handful of dedicated practitioners were instrumental in um, constructing the Kemarama Nuns Monastery in Vietnam, which is about 125 kilometers from the Ho Chi Minh City. Um, and Right now, there are about five Vietnamese Theravada bhikkhunis. Three have master's degrees. Two have PhDs in Buddhist studies. And additionally, all were trained in intensive meditation streets, retreats in Miramar. So I think this is the crossover that you were referring to, um, of being trained in other countries and coming back and establishing monasteries in the Theravada tradition. And then you were going to talk about the mm-hmm. ceremony so in 2006. In 2006, so as I mentioned, in, in Thailand from uh, 1990, 1929 until 2006, it was illegal to ordain a woman in Thailand. And in 2006, that, that was lifted, quietly lifted. It wasn't a lot of noise made about it. And uh, so this is a, a secret, a sort of a, a, a quiet ordination that's happening in Ayutthaya, which is a, a former capital of Thailand. And um, those uh, bhikkhunis who are ordaining are bhikkhuni Ratanawali, bhikkhuni Dhammamita, and bhikkhuni Silananda, who each have their own viharas now and are supported by people in their communities. And um, we'll hear more about bhikkhuni Ratanawali in a moment. <laughs> so here is uh, bhikkhuni Dr. Lee, who is American, and bhikkhuni Ratanawali, who is Thai. Uh, they together have established um, a women's international meditation center in Thailand, in a, in a small village in Thailand. And they've also established the Outstanding Women in Buddhism Award. So if, if you look on the slides, that comes up again and again, received the Outstanding Women in Buddhism Award. And that was uh, to, to uplift women in the Sangha. So the Sakyadita Conference was established to uplift all Buddhist women who were sort of somewhat invisible and the Outstanding Woman in Buddhism Award was to uplift particularly... Um, oh, it's also it's actually all it's, um, ordained and lay Buddhist women. So to, to give more of a, uh, an acknowledgement and a, um, some, uh, 
to give some uh, what do you say visibility to Buddhist women around the world so that we don't uh, disappear. So they've they've established that together. Bikuni Dr. Lee uh, has had a number of life threats because of her work, and uh, they actually their their monastery, their little vihara, last year was. Um, attacked by arsonists and part of it was burnt down uh, these were, when I spoke to Venerable Ratanavali she said they were local men uh, from the village who didn't like that they were supporting Bikuni order because it's not traditional it's outside of what they know and uh, they'd got drunk and come back and threw a Molotov cocktail into the, the Vihara fortunately nobody was hurt and uh, so these bikunis, they are now rebuilding, or they have rebuilt this place in the same place, so they're not moving away. Uh, so with support from the Taiwanese bikunis, they've just rebuilt the center in the same place and they're carrying on with their work. But it is tough, talking about going into the struggle, it's, it's hard. Yeah. And then we have this picture, which you're going to talk about too. Okay, so this is, um, this is a... a, a a group of bhikkhunis, we don't know their names, uh, in, in Nagpur, India, and they are uh, disciples of uh, Dr. Ambedkar. So I don't know if anyone's familiar with, the, with the, um, Dr. Ambedkar and the Neo-Buddhism in India. So India pretty much has, had died out of, from India and had gone to Sri Lanka, but it was not really practiced much in India. And then Dr. Ambedkar was uh, from the untouchable caste, as it was known. He was a very brilliant man, yet boy and man when he grew up. And he... Um, and that's his picture That's there. the picture of him there, yeah. And he, uh, he started... He, he basically started studying by stand, standing outside of the schools and looking through the crack and listening because he wasn't allowed in because he was too low caste and, and uh, learning in that way. And then his father worked for the military and he was able to teach his son. So he got some formal t- training. And then he ended up getting a scholarship to go to Oxford in England and got his PhD in Oxford, and then he came back to India, and uh, he recognized that the caste system was one of the most destructive forces, and that the Buddha overrode the caste system. And so he um, was involved in the conversion of 500,000 Indian people who were known as untouchables uh, to Buddhism. And uh, these bhikkhunis are, are part of the evolution of that of that order that he established. And there are many, many people throughout India now who have converted to Buddhism. And it's, it's mixed. Some are, some are Buddhists because of getting out of the caste system and some really have taken the, the teaching to heart. So these bhikkhunis are those who have gone forth and are a part of that order. Nagpur. Then we come back to America and meet Aya Sobhana Bhikkhuni. Some of you might be familiar with. Um, she was trained by Bhante Guttaratana um, from 1989 to 2010 um, at the Bhavana Society and then was ordained in Dambula in 2006. Um, she's presently the prioress of Aranyabodhi Hermitage in Northern California in Jenner and was recently at the family retreat. Right? She was, yeah, we just recently talked together, yeah. She's a, she's a great woman, she's a very good teacher, very bright, good, good sense of humor, good practice. And uh, Bikuni Visudi, I met Bikuni Visudi at the Hamburg conference in 2007. She's uh, the only Czech Bikuni in the world and she's established uh, a center in Czech Republic. 
where she uh, teaches meditation and she also teaches children. Does, uh, and she lives partly part of her time in, in Czech Republic and part of her time in Sri Lanka. So part of her time is with is um, in meditation retreat with her teacher in Sri Lanka, and part of, she also is involved in um, social welfare work for children in Sri Lanka. And she's uh, also a very well-educated nun and uh, with a great heart. I can say that about her. Yeah. So she's established the Karuna Sevana Bikuni Arama in the uh, Czech Republic. And Venerable Kamatana, I was, had the good fortune to meet recently at the, in Taiwan at the awards ceremony. She's a Taiwanese bhikkhuni who uh, is ordained in the Theravada tradition, even though there, there are no Theravadans in Taiwan. She's ordained in the Theravada tradition. She keeps very high level of discipline. And uh, she has established a monastery in Cambodia um, where there are currently nine bhikkhunis. They are all... T- Taiwanese Theravada bhikkhunis in Cambodia, and uh, you may know Cambodia in the in the seventies um, was basically decimated, and um, Buddhism has has kind of been heavily uh, it, it's you know, there, it's a it's a struggle for Buddhist practitioners to to establish themselves there. There are bhikkhus there. There, there are um, Cambodian bhikkhus, and there are Mechi, white women in white. And so she is trying to bring bhikkhuni order to Cambodia. It's, it's not. It's taking a little bit of time. Um, she has the support of the Sangha Raja, the, the one of the highest ranking monks in the country, and she's also um, establishing like uh, re discovering of putting together pieces of scriptures that were lost during the Khmer Rouge time in Khmer in their local language and, and trying to put back together the scriptures in Khmer language. And um, they are also, the, the community, they're also in the process of establishing a, a large school. Let me see if I can find that. Um, here we are. Uh, the Mahapanya Vihara is their monastery, and they plan to have a school, an uh, international institute, which will have space for 800 students and housing for women, including a plantation on 22 hectares of land at a cost of about $20 million. So it's a very, very expensive and big vision. But as I say, she, they do have support of the highest-ranking bhikkhu in the country. Uh, she said funds for the school were mostly provided by donors outside of the country. Uh, they don't go on arms, door-to-door, as the bhikkhus do, although they do receive some support. And uh, I was uh, very struck by this bhikkhuni's countenance, her, her discipline, her practice, very deep practice, and, and ascetic practice also. She's very impressive. And the, the information that we got from Ayadam. Uh, from Venerable Dhammananda in Thailand was that she had invited women from Cambodia, mm-hmm. but because there was such a low level, right. the, the women couldn't read or write, they really didn't know that much about Buddhism, even though they were ordained, or they were in robes, that they really she... didn't know a whole lot about Buddhism, and she there was like a disconnect, she really couldn't train them, she couldn't ordain them and so she identified education as being mm-hmm. like the number one thing that was needed in terms of Buddhist education 
and reading, just basic reading and writing. So these women have taken that on and created this school for 800 women um, so that they can start with the basics. She's an African-American bikuni, Theravada bikuni in uh, uh, North Carolina. Um, she was, uh, uh, as it says, she was a former Baptist pastor. Uh, she's ordained in Theravada Chan and Zen traditions. And uh, she also receives yes, transmission from Zen, from um, Bernie Glassman. And she's very much interested in the cultivation both of uh, practice, wisdom, and compassionate action. So she, uh, she is, she, uh, when I first met her, actually, she had established the, uh, a hermitage, which was intended to be a practice hermitage. And very quickly she recognized in her local community that there, was a, a lot, there were a lot of homeless youths. So she first of all set up um, welcoming those youths, uh, helping them to find their strengths and in the process she set up a um, training for them and a, a bakery where they could learn to bake and learn kind of life skills and then take that out into the world and sell the, the goods and then have a, a livelihood by which they could uh, leave and support themselves. Uh, she also helped in providing um, she goes, she travels all over the world actually to India and Thailand and she's supported many of the Dalit community in India, giving, um, providing books, supporting with wells, um, providing micro-grants and doing uh, also some emergency relief work. And um, she is, is also, she has also helped to give ordination to women in Thailand. And she is currently in the process of creating a, a very a very large retreat center in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Um, called Hartwood. Called Hartwood, yeah. So she's, she's a kind of a great visionary. She has an enormous amount of energy. She does a lot of good for many people. And uh, she draws on, on all lineages. She wears the Theravada robe, but she really draws on all lineages. And she has a great heart, and she has a very strong concentration practice as well. So she does teach in the in the West Coast sometimes. If you get a chance to sit with her, I recommend it. Um. And the the uh, last um, Terry, who is almost a Maha Terry, that we want to tell you about is um, Aya Medanandi. Um, she was born in Canada, and um, in 1988, while everybody was being ordained in. Los Angeles, she was in Miramar, she was in Burma, and she was uh, asking Sayadaw Pandita to ordain her, and he granted her ten precept novice vows on the condition that she take them for life. And after two years, Miramar was closed to foreigners because of a military coup, uh, coup and she left to go to uh, Amravati at which time she mm -hmm. met Ayananda Bodhi. Well, I met her. She'd already been there a little bit for me. Okay. Uh, so she was actually my novice trainer when I first went to Amravati. She first shaved my head, and so I have a lot of gratitude to her. 
And uh, she lived as a Silidra in England for about 10 years, and then she went off to New Zealand to live more as a hermit, and, uh, and then went on a, an extended several years traveling in, uh, throughout Asia. And during that time, um, she was in Taiwan, and the conditions came together for her to take full ordination. She'd been interested in that for many, many years, but not had missed the opportunity. Uh, and, and as I mentioned before, you know, one can have the ordination, but one also needs the support to live somewhere. So anyway, she took the ordination in Taiwan, and uh, she came back to Canada and established the uh, um, Sati Saraniya Hermitage in Canada. She actually had she'd actually began to establish it before she took the full ordination. Then she she called back saying, "I want to take the full ordination. Is that okay with her community who supported her and her board?" And they said, "Yes, please go ahead." So she went back, and she now has a, a hermitage, very beautiful hermitage in Ontario, Canada. Um, there's just her and one other seminary at the moment who will also be taking full ordination in December in uh, Santa Rosa. So. And she'll be here next week too. And she will also be here next week. She will. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's going to be five Mahateris at the ordination next week. So almost all of them. And if we counted up all her years as a nun, she would be about 30 years now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've come to the last part of this presentation, which, are, which I, I really felt drawn to point out, that these are women who were ten precept nuns, many of who, including Siladara, who have become bhikkhunis in the last few years. And these women would be either Mahateris or Teris if all of their years had been counted. Um, as a Siladara or as Ten Precept Nuns. There's probably many, many more that haven't been included, um, but these are the ones that I know. And the first, of course, would be, um, Ayamidanandi would be a Mahateri if all of her years starting in 1988 were, um, would be more than a Mahateri. So Bikuni Nyatayani, she was uh, she's a Thai Bikuni, and she has a, a center in Chiang Mai. Uh, she was a H precept nun for many years, and was a remarkable practitioner and scholar. And she's particularly knowledgeable in the Abhidhamma. And she had the unusual, uh, unusually, bhikkhus would go to her to receive teachings on the Abhidhamma. So the bhikkhus actually have a rule to not go, not receive teachings from lay people or nuns, believe it or not. But they would go to her because her, her, her teaching was so clear and so good. And after many years, she took bhikkhuni ordination and she now has the most thriving training monastery in Thailand. It's well supported. And then Ajahn Vayama, she's an Australian-born uh, she ordained under Ayakema uh, in Sri- and lived in Sri Lanka for 10 years in, in Nun- on Nuns Island with one other, most of her time was spent with one other bhikkhu, um, uh, 10 precept nun, so she was 10 precept ordination. She lived with one Sri Lankan nun on Nuns Island and, she's, she told that she, and then she came to Amravati for one year after those 10 years. And while she stayed with us, she said on that island they had to work really, really hard. So they would 
to go on arms round, so nobody could come and bring them food very easily. So that to go on arms round, they would have to get in a boat, literally, I saw it rowing, they would have to do that. They would have to row across the island, get to the mainland, and then w- walk on arms, get their food, come back, row back across. And the, the, um, the means of power on the island was a generator, so they'd have to constantly maintain the generator, and they'd have to, to basically take care of everything. And it was a lot of hard work for two nuns. But, uh, you know, they practiced, she had very deep practice, practice well. So we, we had one year with her in Amravati and then she had a, a dream, really, a heart's calling to go back to Australia and take the... Uh, and, and create a place for women in Australia. So um, what year was that? 1997, she returned to Australia and uh, just around that time a, a huge piece of land, uh, nearly, nearly 600 acres of land, had been offered to... Um, well, through Ajahn Brahm, through somebody who knew Ajahn Brahm, had offered this huge amount of land. And it was a Chinese couple who had had their first child who was a girl. And they felt, if, if our daughter wants to grow up to be a nun, there's nowhere for her to be a nun. So they offered this land to create a monastery just in case when their daughter grew up she wanted to be a nun that there would be somewhere she could ordain. <laughs> That's visionary. <laughs> so, um, so, just at, more of that. <laughs> so just at the time that Ajahn Bayama was wanting to go back to uh, Australia this land was offered and so Ajahn Brahm invited her to be the resident nun on that land. And she lived there on her own in a, in a um, carrot little trailer for two years and she would receive arms every day in a tent. Imagine in Australia, it's pretty hot. <laughs> and um, she would offer, she'd receive arms and she'd give teaching after the, after the arms giving, and that would be it. And then she would practice on her own the rest of the days. And uh, this, this land was used in that way for a couple of years, and then people started to come, and she uh, created Damasara Monastery. And that has gradually grown over the years. And I also want to just say that Ajahn Brahm, who was... Um, you know, thrown out of the Ajahn Chah lineage for supporting bhikkhuni ordination. Even before Ajahn Bayama was a bhikkhuni, he would always say to the Thai people who supported him, he'd say, don't feed me if you're not going to feed her. So if you're going to feed me, go and feed her too. If you're not going to feed her, don't feed me, don't feed us. So he really made a stand of like, if you're going to support the Sangha, you support the whole Sangha, not just the bhikkhu Sangha. So that was quite radical. And uh, Damasara now is a, a thriving monastery in Australia. But Ajahn Vayama herself, uh, she, she contracted an illness which has affected her speech and her muscles. It's a degenerative illness. There's nothing she can do about it, really. So she left Damasara as abbess and uh, moved to a little vihara in a town. Uh, it's called Patachara Vihara. And, uh, and, and, that's, and she's supported by um, Aya Seri, one of the four, mm. one of the four women to ordain in 1990, uh, in 2009 in Australia. So Ayaseri is her. She was a, a pharmacist, a naturopath, and she is, uh, is Ajahn caregiver. And if you ever go to their website, you see very joyful pictures. They're very good together. It's, yeah. And then Aya Niroda, she took over as abbess of Damasara from Aya Vayatma after she had to leave because of health reasons. Aya Niroda was uh, actually Austrian and she moved to Australia when she was 20. 
Uh, we don't have much more to say than what you can read. She became a temporary zip line in 2003, was part of that ordination in 2009, and is, uh, was abbot for a number of years at Damasara. And she now lives in Santi Monastery on the, on the east coast of, of Australia in a, a smaller monastery. And Venerable Hasapanya, the fourth of those four to ordain, she is now the abbess of Damasara Monastery, which is a, doing very well under her leadership. The next two um, were former Siladara, who you know well. <laughs> One is Ayananda Bodhi, who was born in Wales in 1968 and trained at Amravati and took full bhikkhuni ordination in 2011. And just in the interest of time, I have her permission to go fast over these two. <laughs> <laughs> and in 2014 became the co-founder of Aloka Vihara's Forest Monastery in Placerville and um, would be a Mahateri if her years as a Siladara would be uh, counted. Aya Santochita was born in Austria with a multifaceted background in hotel management and cultural anthropology and avant-garde dance theater. And um, ordained in 2011 and um, uh, in 2016 re- re- received that first uh, Bik- uh, Global Bikuni Award and the Cool Climate Award. They both did. And um, the last that we wanted to tell you about was Aya Damadira, who was also a Siladara. And if her years were as a Siladara were counted, she would be considered a Terry. Um, she received her teacher certification and master's degree from Claremont Graduate University, which is the same university that Bhikkhu Bodhi graduated from. Mm-hmm. Um, she was trained in the Achantra lineage and spent 11 years at Amravati and Chithurst monasteries. Um, traveled a while and then wanted to be and, and, and took full ordination in 2012 and she eventually decided to become more engaged in society to benefit a larger community and she's established a program called Web of Connection um, where she her outreach includes teaching mindfulness classes to youth leading meditation and inquiry groups for adults and participating in garden in community garden projects. So she's really holding her practice and her place in the world as bhikkhuni in a very different way um, than being in a monastery. And finally, we wanted to finish by just giving you a collage of the up-and-coming bhikkhunis, a few, of the up-and-coming bhikkhunis who um, are... Um, from all different countries and all different backgrounds and are doing all different kinds of things in the world. Shall I use a little light? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so I want to start with Aisu Vijana. We saw her seminary ordination earlier on at, at Jenna. She, she is... Um, so it's, it's said in that for uh, the Sangha to really take root in a country there has to be someone who's actually from that country who ordains in that country then it's really taking root because often Buddhism goes to a new country then you get so similar to what we see in Cambodia it's got bhikkhuni order's gone to Cambodia but as yet no Cambodian bhikkhunis 
So Venerable Suijana, she is actually part Native American, so she's really bringing it into the land. She's the first in that respect. And she was the first one to ordain as a seminary here and one of the first to ordain in 2010 with Ayatatoloka and Jenner. She's actually the first um, who was, yeah, who's American-born to, go, to yeah. go through the whole, the whole, the whole process mm-hmm. in, in her own country. And then Ayajayati. Ayajayati lived with us in Adaloka Bihara for five years. Uh, she's just recently had to return to the UK because of her visa ran out. She's not able to renew her visa in America. So she's now in the UK where there are no bhikkhuni monasteries. So it's a little challenging. Um, and that's also part of the struggle, the visa issue. Mm-hmm. There are borders now in countries. <laughs> then Ayachanda. Ayachanda is English-born. She um, practiced in Burma, Thailand, and Australia. She didn't come through the Amravati system. And uh, she is currently in the process of establishing a place in England, a bhikkhuni monastery in England. Very, very beginnings. And um, Ajahn Brahm has been going every year, last two years, and will continue to go to help raise funds to support that monastery. Uh, there isn't yet an actual physical place. There's a board and, a, and the very beginnings. And then there's bhikkhuni Damadina, who's uh, she's next to Ayachanda. So bhikkhuni Damadina is Italian, uh, she grew up uh, just very close to the um, Ajahn Chah lineage monastery in Italy. So from the age of 14, she was frequenting that monastery. She's very brilliant. She's a brilliant academic. And she currently lives in Taiwan in the Dhammadram University where she oversees the Argama project. So the Argama research project is um, a research project looking into the very early scriptures of the Buddha. And um, she's the... the Mastermind behind many many scholarly works that you might read. She's got input. If you look in the back, you'll find Dhamma, you can find it under different names actually. But Dhammananda, she's often there, including done, the work of Analia. Venerable Analia. She, they work very closely together. Actually, Venerable Analia and Ayadamadina, and he openly says she's much better academic than me. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mean me. I mean him. <laughs> So she's a, a brilliant, but she doesn't, she doesn't like the limelight. She would not be happy knowing that I'm even saying this now. So. <laughs> and then there's Aya Adimuta. She's our one and only um, Kiwi Bikuni, And she has helped to establish the uh, Bikuni, uh, New Zealand Bikuni Trust, together with some ex-Siddhajarayashi who are supporting that. And then Venerable Bodhicitta. Bodhicitta, there she is. So, Venerable Bodhicitta, uh, you can find uh, YouTube clips of her online teaching. She's a very inspiring presence. Um, so, she became a bhikkhuni in 2010. She's a renowned meditation teacher of over 25 years' experience. And her main focus is to practice and act- actualize the Buddha's teachings. She aspires to be, uh, to be a practicing Bodhicitta, practice her name and firmly believes that it is only through the Buddha's teaching that one will be able to overcome the emotional afflictions the world over is experiencing today. So if you get a chance to look her up, I really recommend it. And then Venerable Suniti. This is in the orange, is her? Yes. Um, So she is... Indian. She's part of the Nagpur group. She's Indian, part of the Nagpur Bhikkhuni Sangha. And um, in... She was also after, uh, worked as a social worker for 25 years and a lawyer. 
before she took bikini ordination. She's quoted to say, the world is full of gender inequality. I was tired of working in a male-dominated area. I wanted to promote, to promote gender equality for wo- women through the Buddha. So, just a few. And we couldn't go into everybody's... One more, one more. Oh, one more? I just have okay. to I'll say one more because she is very inspiring. So, Venerable Sobhra she's Thai. She's part of the Buddha Charissa Buddha group. And um, I met her last year in Berkeley where her community came down from Alaska to join the Tupitaka chanting that happens every year in Berkeley. And uh, it happened that the... That the full moon fell in that time and so on the full and new moon the bikunis get together and we go through our recitation of the rule it normally takes between two hours and three hours it's, it's, it's long 311 rules so she was the she was the one chanting she and her sister were both ordained they were both there she was chanting and, she, and we were reading our books she started chanting and she was so fast we couldn't even read as fast as she was chanting <laughs> she got the whole thing down in, fif- in 45 minutes from memory made just two tiny little mistakes so <laughs> just wanted to mention her she's very inspiring and, and yeah that's a good place to end <laughs> very inspiring so. So She's we young. thank you for your patience <laughs> and just to highlight some of the up-and-coming women, younger women, who are um, becoming the mainstays in the bikuni um, lineage throughout the world. Um, and we do have a little bit of time for yeah, ten minutes questions or, or comments. Um, thank you so much for your attention and your presence. It's really been a pleasure to share this with you. This is just an aside, but you know, I always hear male chanting. Do you have your chance? I, I mean, I there want to hear some, women. Yeah, there are some chanting. online. Yes. So uh, we've got a, we've got a, a cards at the back there with our website. You just okay. look online. Okay. We don't thanks. have everything, but we've yeah. got some. Okay. Thanks. Please. And the bikuni chant with the um, the arahat bikunis is on there too. Right. And it's a beautiful chant just to listen to. So I have a question about the bhikkhus who are supporting the ordination of bhikkhunis. So with those two lines of folks, and you were pointing out Mm -hmm. that most of them are from Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. Are they actually coming from Sri Lanka? No. Okay. They're in America. They're living in America. They're Sri Lankan bhikkhus who live in America. Yeah. Okay. A lot of them are from Sacramento. Yeah, some from Sacramento, mm-hmm. okay. Santa Clara. We're actually the, the, the reason we're having the ordination in, in Santa Clara, even though we live in Placerville, is that uh, Bante Amrabudi, who is the abbot of the monastery there, who is a Sri Lanka monastery, he invited us to, to have the, the ordination there. And because our community is partly in the Bay Area and partly up in the foothills, and so we felt it was like kind of halfway. And it also it is difficult to get the bhikkhus together, to find enough bhikkhus to have an ordination. You need a minimum of five absolute minimum. We always say six, because if one of those five don't come, there's no ordination. And so we also thought to actually, you know, to have it in the Bhikkhu Monastery, that's like, they don't have to travel so far. Mm. But he was, you know, it's, it's, I think also, um, it's still controversial in Sri Lanka, even though there, there are monks who support it. And also within, within Thailand, it's still kind of controversial in Thailand, but Venerable Mahaprasut, who is the most senior Thai bhikkhu in, uh, I think in California, he supports bhikkhuni ordination. So you, got, so you see that the people who've left the country where it's more traditional and are in America and have had to find their way, you know, in a foreign country with different culture, they're not so much looking at keeping the tradition perfectly, but how can we 
how can you protect and, and sustain the Dharma in this culture, in this environment? So I think those who've, who've come as, as immigrants to this country are more broad-minded and, and feel more free to take risks in that way, I think. Yeah. Any other questions? Comments? Great. We have two announcements about, uh, that are in relationship to the Bhikkhuni Sangha. Um, the first is that the seventh annual International Bhikkhuni Day is going to be celebrated on September 6th. And this is the end of a one-year celebration of the 2600th year of the Bhikkhuni Sangha. And um, uh, in, tw- in 2011, it was, it was the first B- International Bhikkhuni Day when I originally saw the, the first PowerPoint presentation. So this, is kind of, this day is kind of dear to my heart because they've been... Um, they started this movement of education, and, and I've kind of picked up on it. So we have information about that. And um, I also just recently received an email from the Alliance Bhikkhunis, and as all Buddhist organizations, they are looking for board members. So if any of you are moved to support <laughs> the Bhikkhunis um, on an international level, I was their Pavarana um, coordinator, which was a, a really wonderful position to be in for a while. Um, I was able to give, send out letters to bhikkhunis all over the world saying, there's money available, do you need anything? Because, of course, they can't ask for anything. They have to be given that open-ended um, request invitation. or mm-hmm. invitation. Um, and then we began to slowly get, when they actually believe, well, wow, this is for real, we slowly got requests from different um, places. You know, we need money for education. We need money for books. Do you want to sponsor Bikuni? Um, we're, building a new, we're building a new room. You know, those kinds of things slowly became more real um, when they saw that Alliance for Bikunis was actually available. Um, so they've increased their um, fundraising efforts and increased um, and become, become much stronger in their board. And two of their longtime board members who have been on since the very beginning, 10 years, long time for a board member, um, are really of retirement age and really want to like, slow their life down. So they're looking for some, um, some new people to be on their board. So if anybody's interested, we'll put it on the back table. The back table has um, a number of books for offer, um, some information about the Alliance for Bikunis and Aloka Vihara and other Bikunis um, that we've collected. Um, there's also a sign-up sheet if you'd like to be on the mailing list. If you're not already on the mailing list of Aloka Vihara or Friends of Aloka Vihara, there's a sign-up sheet. If you'd like to be on the mailing list of Alliance for Bikunis and get information about worldwide things that are happening, please put your name there. Um, the pledge cards that were mentioned at the beginning um, are for people, you know, if, you, if you'd like to give a donation in check or cash, that's beautiful. Um, if you'd like to give something online or prefer to give something online, that's what this is for. Um, you can just pledge whatever amount and um, somebody will be in touch with you with an online link so that you can do it through um, an online account. So again, thank you so much for your attention and your presence, and um, may you be well. So just like.